Welcome to another episode of Zero Ambitions, a podcast about sustainability, the built environment and zero carbon goals. This week, we are with architects Emma Elston and Armandeep Singh Kalra. Now, they both work at Be First, the entity charged with the task of regenerating Borough Bark in Dagnam. Now, this was a link that Sarah set us up with back in December, I think. We've been trying to get it in since then. These are part of a design team that's pioneering a really interesting version of MMC, Modern Methods of Construction. This is to help with the development of social housing stock and private housing stock in a forward-thinking and sustainable manner, as well as factoring in retrofit in the future, rather than just thinking about retrofit now, like we usually talk about. They're doing really interesting stuff even going so far as to develop a uh, a pattern book for the work that they're doing, which will be, in time, open source. Yeah, it sounds really exciting. So, uh, without further faffing about, I'll let the podcast play. Cheers. Thanks for listening. So, welcome to another episode of Zero Ambitions. This time we are with Emma Elston and Amandeep Talra. It is just me and Alex today. Jeff is stuck on a plane somewhere outside of Paris, in Paris. Yeah, I don't know the airport's Getting right to there. Disneyland, I hope. Yes. <laughs> well, uh, in a manner of speaking, for a building technology nerd, he got a tour of the Arico production facilities there. I think that's what he was going for. Yeah. Um, I thought he well, might have been stuck on a roadblock somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, there's every chance. We've invited you on to talk about modern methods of construction, sort of modular build and how you guys are using it in your day-to-day. Do you want to give us a bit of background about, for the listener, about who you guys are, who you work with? Um, and, oh, a quick shout-out to Sarah, because she set this up ages ago. Uh, so this was was her link. And, uh, yeah, if you haven't started listening to her podcast the best, you should. Quick plug for them. Uh, it's only fair. But, yeah, Emma, I'm Dean. Sure. We give a bit of an intro to, well, uh, where we both work. We've both worked together before, which is just great anyway, because we've got good chemistry and we work well together. But actually, so we work, both work at B First, which is Barking and Dagenham's housing regeneration company, primarily building um, affordable social housing, um, most only within the borough of Barking and Dagenham, but also increasingly new neighborhoods, parks, places and industrial buildings as well, which is something we're about to complete in a couple of months time which is super exciting that's the bread and butter of what be first does but actually increasingly emma and i get involved in all sorts of stuff because as soon as you're paired with the beast of a commercial organization like a local authority which employs three thousand people and you know manages from things like waste collection to setting aspirations for decarbonizing the entire borough by 2050 there's so much stuff in between that that actually if you start getting to understand the right people there are amazing opportunities to connect departments and do really interesting things. So aside from us kind of working on our future regeneration projects and building new housing, which we're currently doing at roughly the rate of 500 to 600 new homes per year, we've um, got about 1,800 on site now. So I'd say that's our bread and butter, but me and Emma do quite a lot of research in between that. And perhaps Emma, I think you could probably talk a bit about the Beckendry, actually Beckendry stuff, super interesting in this, in this, Mm -hmm bit as well but i've been involved quite a lot in what we call the pattern book which we'll probably touch on in more detail in a minute 
but really it's our way of um, figuring out how we use MMC strategically. We've been playing with it, we've been toying with it, testing it, experimenting with it, sometimes at a very small scale, sometimes going a bit too big with it. But I think we found actually to harness its actual real benefits, both in terms of sustainability, but actually all the other things everybody celebrates about it, you need to look at a much more strategic view on how you do it. So that's something I've been working on over the last two and a half years. And actually this podcast comes at a really good time because we've sort of got to a point where we've built this thing which we are going to launch soon and start testing our first project which we have already started. So yeah, I'm excited to you know start talking about some of that and see what your listeners and you guys think about it. Um because yeah I think just to piggyback off what Amandu was saying, I think the, the the fascinating thing is that a local authority is actually one of those landlords that takes a building all the way through to its end of life. As Amandeep said, they, they deal with the waste at the end, but also they're building the property at the beginning and then managing it all the way through. And then not only that, but you have the additional kind of social infrastructure required and that commitment to support residents. So it's like it, it, as a kind of innovation opportunity it, it makes so much sense that local authorities should be the ones pioneering these kinds of processes and, and joining those dots and um, they're not a kind of sort of throw it up flog it off type developer and I think Be First is a really interesting company in that we're wholly owned by the council but we're a private enterprise which obviously allows us to borrow money which is great um, but it also we've taken the planning uh, department on into Be First as well so they're part of the development and, and planning arm of the company of Be First. And I think what that's done is, yeah, give us a much more strategic overview of looking at really long term, you know, the, the commitments to be net zero, but more than that, the kind of demographic shifts that are happening and the, the predictions and opportunities that that might throw up and, and really plan where we need to go and what what we should be prioritizing over the next I think our local plan is to 2037, but we're already planning beyond that because, again, it's that, you know, it's a really long term view. And uh, yeah, so I'm the sustainability associate and Amandeep's associate director, but we both work in the design team, which is a kind of, um, well, it's the design arm, but we have a lot of different people from different backgrounds. So architects, landscape designers, strategists, urban designers, um, and we kind of, work really closely with other teams as well so it's a very collaborative approach where we work with the planning team um i work a lot with the maintenance team tie those things up and really really dispel that idea of everybody working in their silo and kind of only only doing their their role and not really thinking beyond that which you know it's challenging it's not always it doesn't always work as well as perhaps i'm making it sound but there have been some really great opportunities and and projects that have come out of that and one of them is um the Beckentree Design Code. So we're working on a Barking has the largest social housing estate that was ever built in Europe. And it's 29,000 homes. It was an interwar cottage estate based on garden city principles, um, sort of homes for heroes and all of that. It's and it's obviously having certain issues in terms of yeah, the the, the kind of build quality and the the, the method of construction at the time and then where we're needing to get to to kind of be net zero by 2050 so one of the things we've worked with um with several other teams is to produce a design code which is for the planning department to kind of promote sustainable design 
promote retrofit and promote modern methods of construction to kind of allow people to do do the most with the least and in the most efficient way. And we also have supporting that a retrofit design guide for mostly for residents to look at how they can alter their house and how they could potentially take um, advantage of components that we we have designed and tested and said, look, we know that this works. Um, the, the, the great thing about the estate is that it, even though there's 29,000 homes, there's only about five. There were originally 12 different types, but on analysis, we realized there's about four or five different types. Um, they're very standardized, so you can you can make some assumptions and you can get that, you know, get critical mass of saying we know we need to do twenty nine thousand of these because everybody's got the same, you know, same condition. So we can we can just get get stuck in with that rather than having to do a lot of bespoke elements. And yeah, and I think what the so that's one work stream and another one which I think yeah Amadeep will touch on more as well as we're looking at an MMC pattern book so we've been looking at components for new build developments as well with um we're working on that with Hawkins Brown and Cast is it Cast yeah and Ramble as well Ramble. yeah yeah so components and that's something where we're also forming a buyers club with several other local authorities to try and put pressure on the supply chain in the MMC world to to make sure that we're getting the products that we want rather than sort of being beholden to what they think they think mm. we would like to buy. Wow. Uh I mean where do you want to start? Yeah yeah but I mean there's so much to to dig into. Like it, it <laughs> in a funny way it seems like you've found the perfect sandbox to test an awful lot of these things. Buildings that need retrofit because mm. I grew up next to the Royal Ordnance Factory estate outside of Chorley, near the site of Buckshaw Village, one of the largest, uh, I think, a mixed-use development, like one of the best planned developments in Europe. I think when Jeff and I started Construct Island, it was flagged as one of the the, the biggest uh, housing and infrastructure projects like in Europe at the, that time, possibly the biggest because it was so many phases. They're still building it now. This is like 20 odd years later. But yeah, that replaced the prefab housing that had existed on the periphery of the, the factory. And I mean, there were still some people living in it when we'd we'd got there, but you could see it was dilapidated. It wasn't built to last. And there were a few holdouts, pensioners who just weren't prepared to move, but it doesn't stand up stand up to the tests of time or weather very rainy northwest and the fact that you you've got you've been given permission to explore this stuff is really interesting yeah uh, <laughs> that, that's a bit of an interesting one itself i mean one thing about what you just said was quite reminded me about the beckentree estate itself was it, it was it was looking at a way to clear slums and provide uh, the kind of you know homes fit for war heroes yeah. and it, it, interestingly enough, it was led by the GLC, which at the time sort of where the Beckentree estate is formed three different council boroughs. And it was a place to have basically new new housing that also used disused war factories to create not like massive, not pods and panels, but like blocks and timbers and stuff. So it in itself tried to use factories, which were quite close to the estate, to create components and modularize <laughs> some of that construction for what Emma was saying, three house types cover 70% of the borough. 
Um, so you've got this interesting thing of an architects-led department at the time using disused factories to use modern methods of construction to create a better way of living after clearing slums. So it, almost what we'd sort of, you know, what was clear, clearing slums in terms of those homes 100 years on, I'm not going to say they've definitely not become slums, but in terms of air tightness, humidity, damp, um, they've had all these amazing principles, the, the dominate dominance of cars, which turned this like super garden village-esque trimmed hedges of streets where you just had picturesque images of people walking down them into, you know, 90% of the streets are covered with cars. People wouldn't really walk in them. And then it's kind of like, you know, half of what me and Emma have been thinking, actually, what, we're not trying to reinvent anything, but try and revive the garden village principles and actually make those homes almost what they set out to do at the beginning, which was improve living conditions for people um, and give them a better sense of life. And actually what's ended up happening over 100 years is actually some of the lowest life expectancy in the borough is now in the Beckentree estate because partly to do with the state of those homes, the lack of walkability, yeah. um, the lack of doorstop green in place space, unfortunately. So yeah, this has gone in one full circle after a hundred years. It is the, the circle of, so uh, the circle of life in terms of architecture and social housing. If it's, it, it's interesting as well, this, this uh, cycle of dilapidation, because the housing itself was built after the first world war, like social housing was, instigated because of the the poor state of physical health of the the soldiers who were sent over onto continental europe to die i mean a yeah. certain irony to that as well yeah i was just i mean i think that the roots of it are, are fascinating that yeah i think this sort of the socialism is potentially a little questionable and it was like we just need good <laughs> you know, we need a fit young cannon fodder to like send out but i think i think that's still you know the the it's as Samadip said, that the principles are entirely valid still. I think that the, yeah. the, the estate itself was completely planned around smaller local centres so that, you know, we everyone would be in walking distance from a school and a church and a, a small collection of shop, your butcher and your baker and so on. And and, and that, you know, the idea of the neighbourhood, um, the kind of um, community was really key and they had you know preferential tenants and how they organized everybody so and it was very paternalistic and perhaps you know very much of its time i think you know the, the principles are still valid it's just how, about how to kind of shift that forward and and interestingly on top of life expectancy one of the things that's really striking now is that the, the highest levels of fuel poverty in the borough are also in the beckentry estate because it was, they were all planned obviously a hundred years ago on coal fire, and they have you know a huge, huge chimneys, uh, huge fireplaces in the, the downstairs and medium-sized ones upstairs, and everyone has a coal hole. Um, but you know that's obviously something where we've got to try and work out how how to get MVHR in there, and you know where you're going to put your air source heat pump if it doesn't quite fit in the chimney breast, and um, <laughs> it's a sort of yeah, it's definitely a. Uh, the great thing is actually one of the so the the, the uniformity of the state it is fairly high build quality the, the the quality of the homes is really good they you know they have stood up they stood to the test of time it's more that just the the functionality of them needs to kind of be brought brought back up into the 21st century and um yeah i think it's 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 fascinating to look at the fact that yeah when they built the estate, they were using MMC. They had these factories built, you know, cut everything on to size, 
had a train that ran from some of the factories in East Ham and Beckton all the way up into the estate and just, you know, stopped at each stop, dropped off, and then they would put up that <laughs> within, you know, a matter of weeks. It was, yeah, quite, quite impressive. What I'm really interested to, to hear now is, is there a definition for modern methods of construction? As you say, it was already maybe potentially referred to as that mm-hmm. 100 years ago, and we're still using that term. So w- how would you define it? Well, um, if you were to look at governance, government's way of defining it, they've, they've sort okay. of categorized it in their three, seven ways, right? There's seven categories which go from all the way from the very first, which is number one, which is like completely seen as the most off-site to, to, to sort of number seven, which is like getting lower and lower. So I think for me, it's if I was to define those, then I, you, I could define it in that way. And I think it's quite, it's been quite helpful that there is a sort of centrally looked at definition because I think what you were saying, um, what you guys were saying earlier as well, is I, I've certainly found the category one end, which is seen as fully volumetric offsite pods that arrive in maybe two or three blocks if it's a house and it's assembled in less than, you know, two, three weeks, is seen as sometimes the holy grail of like, this is the thing, right? But obviously, you know, interwar and post war, we were building these tin boxes firstly, then, and secondly, I've actually found that there's a varying degree of what you think is modern just because it's off-site. But actually, if you enter some of these factories, it's basically doing the same shit in a shed. Mm. So you're building with the same, you're, you're effectively treating the shed as the site. So it's not like there's this amazing, you know, you, you imagine this thing is coming out of the factory that you're thinking of a Tesla factory. Actually, what it is is, there is just a station for the brickie, there's a station for the electrician, there's a station for the carpenter, and you've got controlled conditions. It, that's, the, that's the kind of main thing that's changed. Whereas actually, some few factories I've been in, they're actually using what I would deem as a modern way of, of starting to construct, which is using old crushed bricks to 3D print brick slips, or they are using uh, the core of their structure they manufacture in-house and one of the ones where I recently saw Kiss House recently they found that one of their biggest obstacles um, to getting stuff on site was windows window manufacturers often give you 12 to 18 months delivery time so they were like why don't we make our own windows mm-hmm. so they so they effectively bought a window extruder within their own factory so they're able to control where they get the timber for that the glass ratings and they can fit that and build that so they've developed a really clever way of extruding timber to get windows up in like a day so for me i think there is the central government definition which just categorizes how off-site something is whether it's additive or subtractive so cat one is your volumetric cat two is systemized panelized 2d um, panels that come on site category three is the non-systemized version of that then you got all the way up to category five where you're getting pods just pods and um, which would include your bathroom pods your utility pods which are just plonked into a building and then you've got additive ways of 3d printing beyond that and then you've got minor components and site-based improvements which are right at the latter end so i think the way it's for me the way it's ordered it's trying to say one and two is your holy grail but my issue with that is if you look at some of the manufacturers doing one and two in their factories are very much a traditional manufacturer they just happen to be doing more stuff off-site and bringing it on site and i think we've got to be very careful of trying to see all off-site stuff as actually modernizing construction often it just masks it just takes stuff away from site and just does it and i'm, I'm there is benefits to that because i think 
waste is still reduced and transport journeys are still reduced. You might have, you know, like you were saying earlier, Dan, about kind of getting in less abled workforces, having a training regime, having like there is loads of benefits still to that. I'm not getting mixed up with that. But I think my my issue with the construction industry in general in the UK is it's basically just become like Einstein's definition of insanity, which is we keep doing the same shit over and over again, but expecting different results. And um, like it operates in this this kind of siloed way. So most of especially current housing design, it, it at scale tries to solve just a very slightly different problem, but like trying an entirely new solution each time. And I think that's the biggest waste of time, resource and money. And ultimately, like that's the kind of stuff that inhibits innovation rather than actually lets it happen. Yeah. So. Well, an endless theme of the podcast is uh, we have all the solutions to all the problems already. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're talking about modern methods of construction that aren't actually modern to replace no. methods of construction. I mean, the, the MMC is probably centuries old. The yeah. uh, actual methods of construction are probably millennia old. Uh, mm. Oh, sorry. I say actual methods of construction, other methods of construction, you know, brick and stone building, wooden building. It's thousands of years. And we haven't, you know, moved this on. is, well, we've moved on in terms of hype. And this is where, so when we first proposed this podcast, we suggested it to Jeff to talk about MMC. And Jeff wearily shook his head at us because he's coming from a very much like a building efficiency and low carbon perspective. Like I'm, I'm being very reductive. I'm sorry, Jeff. Um, but he's increasingly wary of people conflating MMC with low carbon, either in yeah. terms of upfront, embodied, or operational. And it is not necessarily any of those things. So when we, we invited you on, we offered our three perspectives on the podcast. Like Alex is well into MMC as a proposition, and he's very much looking towards the future of it. Jeff is very dubious about how it's being used and conflated with low carbon building economies, which isn't essential to it. And I'm just increasingly put off by the hype because it ain't no. I mean, I think I think that's a very interesting point. And I think I think that's where we're really trying to operate is to put pressure on that. Because I think, yeah, the, 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 the modern in MMC is, of course, questionable. I think like as we've discussed that these these kinds of things have been done repeatedly and you know you think about how the victorians built buildings they had catalogs of stuff and they just put the same things together in repeated ways and i'm sure that's how they built the pyramids as well it's it's not a new idea of having an efficiency of you know making certain components that you you tested and tried and then putting them together in maybe varying um patterns and and configurations but i think the the key is if we can harness some of the the opportunities that MMC does give, if you've got that offsite uh, opportunity to say, okay, we've got we've got these replicable conditions, we know we can make the same thing year in year out, and and we can then test and kind of tweak it to make sure can we do more with less? Can we, you know, if we're extruding these window frames, can we reduce the waste? Can we do it with recycled timber instead of new timber and we can you know we can test that in those conditions and hopefully move towards that innovation faster than you know having to find a new site each time where yeah. then you can't replicate those specific you know instances because that was that was for that 
location and that client and that opportunity but if you can say okay I've got this and then I can just repeat tweak the recipe until it's right and it gives us all you know what we want which is hopefully the lower and lowest possible embodied carbon the most efficient production the least waste and I struggle sometimes with yeah the, the fact that I feel like the the where MMC is heading, it doesn't feel as though it's it's going that way as much as perhaps it, it could do. But that's why I think it's really important for people to make those demands. It is, you know, at the moment it is just a, it's a market. And if there's demand for that, then the, the supply chain will have to respond to it. And I think that's where we're hope, hoping that the buyers club will come in. If we can get local authorities to come in and say, well, we want to do this. We have to do this because the government's mandated it. But we've all got these zero carbon targets, and we need you to be doing that as well. Yeah. Well, how far? Who's in this buyers club? I mean, that sounds really interesting. It's. I don't know how like announced or official, but certainly quite a lot of the East London local authorities are in there, um, and that's. I think we're at seven seven or eight at least and i think at the moment it's really um how we all have quite similar conditions and problems um how do we get together to to sort of solve them so what you were just saying earlier dan as well about like sustainability and mmc is getting mixed i think actually mmc is getting mixed with lots of things at the moment it, it's just become the default silver bullet for answering costs and sustainability speed and quality so everyone has just gone that's just going to sort it out now. So we've actually often found that, you know, you know, I've been doing the research for a number of years, but we often get new local authorities wanting to join the buyers club or use some of the work we've done, but they've gone, oh, we've got a couple of garage sites. They've been really hard for us. There's lots of problems on them. Um, and I think, you know, we should do some MMC on them and give that a go. And I'm like, that's just not going to fly, guys. So you've got, you've got garage sites that have really tricky access. They have loads of um, below-ground services, lots of edge conditions, lots of party walls, um, and you want to experiment with a new way of building on your trickiest sites that are most the most hardest to get viability right on. And I'm just like, it's just the wrong approach. What you're doing is setting yourself up to kill MMC so you never use it again because that's what it will do on that site for you. It will cost you more. You might not even be able to do it and it will put place a massive restraint on a site actually you want less restraints because you've got loads of constraints already and you want less constraints and i'm not saying you can't do it on on them but i think it it doesn't need the approach of i've got a couple of sites we need 10 houses let's chuck you know let's do your mmc thing on it it needs a very different approach actually and i think we actually found some of the very first projects we did with mmc it didn't cost us less you know we didn't hit all the quality metrics we it, the first time you do something new, you've got to be willing to accept that it's not going to give you, you know, it, you're taking a bit of a risk. Whenever you innovate, right, you're taking a risk and you can't be like, right, it's going to sort my problems out first time around when I've done something new. Yeah. And that's been the biggest that... problem, trying to change that narrative with how people have started being told that MMC will solve your sort of housing problems. But that's that's the that's the thing, isn't it? That's what's the most difficult is that I think humans are always looking to technology, and it's become a bit of a, a cultural thing. Technology is going to fix everything. Look, you know, and I, I mean, Dan knows this. Always talk about the phones. You know, we've got this phone. It's got it just does everything for me. It's going to cook for me. It's going to you know run my life. It's great. It can. It's great. And everyone that's everyone says this. It's it's perfect. So everyone is thinking about modern methods of, of construction as as you said the silver bullet 
that's just going to go and take, as you said, take the most complicated site and suddenly make it all go away. And that's the thing that we have to work on is actually communicating that modern methods of construction are either they're centuries old, if not millennia old, or they are some pretty cool new technologies, but they have specific application in specific scenarios and have to be also taken with specific considerations to what they are for. And if we don't, if we continue thinking it's all about just saying it's going to solve problems all the time and it's going to be a quick win, a shortcut, that's where it's going to be destroyed and why we're going to have Jeff's opinion uh, winning rather than mine, which I think it is a good thing, but you're absolutely right. It has to be used within the right prem uh, parameters. Well, we worked on a bid. Uh, we worked on strategy for a, a bid for a big bit of work for someone earlier this year. And one of the, like in helping them construct the, what was being communicated within the bid to try and help them win the work, we realized like after writing one of the sections, like, hey, are you describing MMC here? Oh, yeah, uh, we call it offsite construction. And within that, there was no reference to any carbon efficiencies or any of the, the standard stuff. The main issue that was being addressed within this tender uh, document was we can build it offsite, we can test it offsite. And then when access is available, because it's a tricky site, we can sweep in, get it in through the, the, the tricky access and egress points, assemble it, and we don't have to do loads of stuff. Uh, we can get in and out really efficiently, which reduces our health and safety risks. It means that the, the parts that are being assembled have already been tested, so we know it should work. So it's going to take us less time on site and we're out and it were it's much more efficient for everyone involved you can control your conditions off-site nearby to do the testing and just get in get it done get out and there was absolutely no hype whatsoever within this it was the most mundane boring detail um and they were making absolutely nothing of it like we were trying to can we not sprinkle a little bit of this bullshitty stardust like just just to hang like just just Throw something at it. Well, I suppose, yeah, we could. Um, oh, fair play to them. Oh, yeah, health and safety, that's a benefit, which I've just not seen recorded anywhere else. And it, it, obviously it depends on the size of site. But, uh, yeah, it was just a funny one seeing it just thrown in unexpectedly. Yeah. Just to, to play devil's advocate, I mean, I, I guess I agree. I think, you know, the... the description of it as off-site construction or off-site efficient construction or something is probably more accurate and i think you know the the the, the fact that the hype sort of painted it as this perfect solution is problematic to for sure but then i sort of think the the fact that it started the conversation you know you've got your snappy little acronym you've got your we have to get people talking about this it is that kind of thing it's same with the air source heat pumps that at the moment a lot of the effort is to sell people on this you know we have to convince that there has to be a level of convincing required to get people to go okay i'm not going to do the exact same thing we've been doing for a thousand years i'm going to try and shift it a little bit more into a, an arena which perhaps yeah gives us different results whether that gives you better health and safety or more inclusivity or just faster builds and less disruption and things like that and and the carbon savings that could potentially come with a lot of the other a lot of the other benefits i i think there's a sort of you know is the hype all bad could the hype help 
as well to kind of just get get sprinkle that stardust get people interested get them through the door and once they're through we can sort of say okay it's, it's not going to be the silver bullet but it's still valuable it still needs to be pursued yeah they should definitely have the sprinkling but I, but i think with the point you were making alex about the technology uh, I, I always ask whenever people say mmc it is like the the classic quote technology is the answer but what is the question right so just forget yes. the technology <laughs> just tell tell me what you like what's your problem here and if the problems are this this and this well that mmc is not your answer there i'm afraid because you've got a site that can't take mmc and um if we're talking acronyms getting nerdy here i mean my favorite acronym i don't use mmc very much actually i prefer dfma um because actually that's eluding less to something modern it's more talking about designing for manufacturing and assembly and i think if you're thinking of kit of parts making things outside bringing them in and bring putting them together in a very different way then i that's why i really like that term because it's not putting a weight of modern into something we all know actually is is the modern word itself is quite questionable because other than that it's in methods of construction which well really that's that's that is what we're doing so um i think i think we we have to pursue it though because the status quo is you know if we were to if we were to take a current design process of getting things in the built you know built in the uk we we appoint an architect to design a building right we then go we then realize we can't build it or afford it so we then get the engineers and qs's to do the you know let, let, what how, how are we going to build it how are we going to cost it and then we go actually we we can do it let's redesign it let's re-engineer it let's recost it and you kind of do that iteratively back and forth after you've done the initial design until you've got something that you can afford and you think you might be able to build it then you submit it to planning and if you're in the kind of public sector you want to then get a builder that approach mostly is design and build contracts at that point you've then got a contractor on board who looks at your stuff and goes i don't think that that's a you know stage three level of detail i actually can't build it the way you've designed it i prefer to build it using concrete mm. and they have the responsibility of designing cost and construction and if you're not there to steer their ship massively so then they go right we're going to do this this and this which means right we're going to go back to planning we're going to redesign we're going to recost we're going to re-engineer and then you get to site, you've replanned it, you've done load, you've done lots of work, you've redone yourself, and then you make all those changes on site until you get right to the end. And I think my biggest issue with the with status quo is the buildability and construction and cost intel comes too late. It comes way too late because the biggest impact you can have as a designer on anything really is right at the front, right at the front. And that info that is so fundamental to a client actually getting stuff done, like, i.e., can I afford it? i.e. will it stand up it comes too late and i'm not advocating for that to be flipped at all like you know emma and i are both architects and i think a really important design-led vision is ultimately definitely the start of a project but it's really having the build and the cost data way way early in the project to help and guide and inform projects then being tacked on that then has this up and down iterative come back and forth process um, which is only conducive to a traditional way of working because that's the only method you can keep changing stuff till the very, very last minute. Yeah. So so what should people, so like thinking about, in fact, perhaps we asked this question as well, like what are the right circumstances or the most appropriate circumstances for considering the application of MMC and what are the benefits that one should be seeking from it? Like, because what you just described sounded like with these methods, you can mitigate 
pernicious value engineering. You can do it well straight away rather than just making the, the, the end result shitter as you go. That, that is the plan, I think. And well, maybe this leads nicely on to talking about what we've called the pattern book and why that is if, essentially what I described as a problem we've seen repeated on all our projects, right? We go through it multiple times. Not one of our projects has had planning once and not one of our projects has not had value engineering and not one of our projects have not hadn't had multiple cost plans and must, multiple changes or had structures changed in and out like it was, you know, swapping which toothbrush you use in the morning or whatever so <laughs> so in turn your question was about like when do you use it i think actually it's it's that one's that one for me can vary on who you are as a client and so before we started making this we were like right over the next 10 years what types of sites do we have where are they and what are the likely typologies we are going to build on them because of their context and what's around them and actually that showed us that houses and towers i.e over 10 stories were only about 20 percent of what we were going to build in the next 10 years so 80 percent is likely to be low rise to mid rise so maybe something between three to four stories to eight to nine stories is likely going to be the biggest our bread and butter so that immediately told us let's work to build something for that bit Mm -hmm. because the other bits perhaps often anyway houses can vary sometimes site by site point blocks that are so tall often are in quite bespoke situations have to have a really contextual response and have to be quite different so let's look at this middle bit and this middle bit really for us was was definitely not cat one so the pattern book is not about like let's pick a supplier let's pick their pod and roll that out it's very much like the opposite and if i use this sort of analogy to try and describe it what we really wanted to do was um, create a game which is a set of rules that lots of different suppliers can supply within so if i use the um, analogy of a computer we wanted to make the motherboard right the motherboard for standardized housing what is the standardized housing motherboard and the motherboard is designed to have a variety of components it's got its ram it's got its processor it's got its hard drive it's got all sorts of those things that can plug seamlessly they can be upgraded chained in and out but the idea is is, is common language right we don't have common language and common language mm. is what allows, you know, the app store or a motherboard or like real innovation to happen because, you know, you're able to come back into the same thing day in, day out. So you can feel confident in investing resources into something that you're developing, knowing that that will just slot in seamlessly. So and the the thing like a motherboard is something that could be updated like an OS system. And I think for us, like the, the processor itself, which is an integral part of a motherboard, would be likened by me to like the the structural system of a building right a really fundamental thing which you have to choose really early on depending on what you want if you're on a site with um let's say a flood risk zone or really um poor ground conditions you're going to go down a certain route you want to have a really low embodied carbon to start with you're going to narrow your options to to that to begin with so that is something you're going to pick depending on what you want out of there so what we've then created is a version of that which is let's create a grid let's create a grid that stays same across all our sites right and that grid is designed to be not quite perfect for any structural system it's got fat so it can take it can take your steel it can take your timber it can take your concrete it can take your precast concrete and the idea of this is we will be a bit fat with this grid but the idea is that it can take things things can swap in and out and if we stick to a way of, if we stick to a grid of building for, let's say, 10, 15 years, 
we know the supply we get into bed with go right okay they built one building like this their next one is going to be like this how about we create a system a structural system that's component based that fits in that grid how about we create a bathroom how about we create some walls how about we create let's just invest some resources in that because we know their grid is that grid and yeah. i think what we found is having some level of standardization and consistency should actually enable flexibility and innovation and variety because like i said before like a one bed flat in a high, like medium rise building is not going to be designed 20 different ways right there's going to be two ways to do it let's design those two ways and get designers to focus on the really important site specific stuff whilst we have suppliers like playing in this game and kind of innovating and testing and rebuilding so that in a nutshell is what we've sort of spent the last two years trying to create and so how who could access this pattern book and how do you hope they're going to be able to use it um well initially it started off being something we were going to create for ourselves because our pipeline was so big but um the gla got we spoke to the gla they got involved and they were super interested and they funded quite a substantial part of it with the hope that all of london could use this so it could be mm -hmm. a london housing pattern book the way it's set up it's primarily set up for use by technical um design team members so structural engineers engineers architects etc but it's very much written at the front in a way where you know housing commissioners development managers politicians could look at this and also go okay this is something really interesting we could deploy so it's very much designed to be open access once we do publish it you know online available something that we update regularly as well and you know it might be you know motherboards don't change very often but components change within them. So, for example, um, the Category 5 bathroom utility pods that do not need to change and be redesigned design team by design team, they could be things that are actually quite regularly innovated, new new ways of cladding or new heating systems. or new, like They change way more regularly, so it could be that certain components are much more updated. So the idea is it will be eventually hosted online, it will be updated by us, and it will be accessible, hopefully, to all London boroughs with open access to all London boroughs, no cost or anything like that. So we've invested the time and we've had the resources from GLA so that we can enable all London boroughs to use this. And then just to um, add in, the, I think we, you were asking about what are the benefits that we're looking for. And I think that's that's the key thing. It, it, we hope that by kind of setting the pattern book up and saying, look, we've standardised these parts and we, we want innovation within this framework and by giving you the standardization, we, we've freed up your resource from having to, you know, decide mm. what grid to use and decide what pod size to use. It's like those things are set, but then we, we, we're going to be more demanding in terms of how do you respond to that with sustainability, with social yeah. value, with, you know, kind of saying as a client, we know we've made this easier for you in order so that you can come back to us with more efficient, you know, use of materials, lower embodied carbon how how are you working with i think i think one of the things we we find challenging is that is we have really high social value kind of targets within our contracts anyway um and then making sure that if we're doing off-site construction is that kind of local spend and local skill being built up so is there an option to do a kind of last mile um version where potentially they you know some some components are built off-site but then in the assembly area you're using you're you're getting benefits for people within the borough or within or, or yeah. within the area that it's being built so yeah looking at saying okay can you innovate there can you innovate here but 
what we've given you is like taken, you know, you don't have to be redesigning where the toilet is going to go and how, how the, you know, at least how the heating system is going to be connected. We've set that all up. We want innovation in the, 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 how the heating system is going to perform and how the building is going to perform and how the, the, the kind of construction is going to perform for, for everyone involved. Is there a risk, though, potentially through this systematic approach that we're coming back to the prefab um, sort of view of uh, modern methods of construction where we're thinking, well, in 10, year, 10, 15 years time, everyone has got that same category five bathroom and, oh, my goodness, this, you know, it's horrendous and I need to change it, et cetera. Because a good point, what I really like about this is that what you're really telling, saying is that in 50, maybe even 100, time, 100 years time, people are going to know exactly how to re-retrofit these buildings again uh, and in a way that's really easy to do. But are we not going to have a risk of creating that stigma again because it's just become too standardized and everyone's got the same thing? Well, well, that's an interesting one. I think we, for that exact reason, we were really against working in the volumetric podded approach of a supplier. And, and that's the thing. But when you, when you go down the volumetric route, you really have to commit some large numbers to a single or two suppliers to really prop them up. And you stop, they stop, and they often collapse when you stop. And it's a very high-risk way of working. So I think what we wanted to do was enable loads of different structural systems to come in and out, loads of different facade mechanisms. And actually, grid, when people think grid, they think boxes as well. And I think I want to clarify that as well, that it doesn't mean buildings will be boxes. And I think how we define it is all sites can have inflections, angles, and, and grids can work in the same way. And we actually say when you have angles and grids, where you should do that and you should think carefully about where you want special moments where you want to change things rather than let's just create loads of zigzags here because it's a cool thing to do it's like let's focus let's design that zigzag let's focus on where that special moment is and the rest doesn't have to do that and similarly we go right actually if you got a site that's the shape of a weird kite but that's just not going to work do not use the grid there but use the other principles um and actually if you've got a use like a You've got, a, you know, um, one of the schemes we recently completed, 200 Beckenty tree designed by Archeo. Um, it's only 12 homes, and that's a really specific site with a specific response to a condition. And we wouldn't, we just wouldn't use the gridded approach there because it's so small and, cons- and that goes back to my earlier point of shoving MMC into complex sites that actually <laughs> that site is not suitable for a grid. But other approaches in terms of thinking about how you repeat components and stuff and, and look at us, they apply. So and that was um, but to your point about flexibility and Emma's point as well about like uh, uh, us taking away the stuff that we already repeat a lot. And that's the thing, because, you know, councils and what uh, Emma's early, really early point about we do want bathrooms for, you know, five years or 10 years to be the same for us because actually council maintenance teams keep um are trained to maintain certain things they keep stocks of tiles to replace bathtubs sinks etc and if you had 10 schemes with 10 different bathrooms you got you know times that by 10 different taps and tiles and baths to replace you've not only got like a complexity of replacing parts but also training people on different ways so i think for us it's like because we don't build to sell or we don't build to plan to flog it's very much we're going to own this asset and homes for 50, 60 plus years. So for us to know how it's built in detail is really important to your point also about disassembling this, reusing these in a different way, um, but also replacing, maintaining, looking after them 
a level of consistency is really good. But I think, you know, maybe there's those things of like version 2.0 or 3.0 because you've had something for five years or 10 years. And actually after that period, you've got a whole load of cool improvements that you need to do anyway, instead of trying to do a new bathroom for every development, which I think isn't where the interesting part is actually doing interesting ways of putting together a facade that uses an innovative low carbon material rather than always thinking brick first or whatever that's where i'm just like yes let's put let's think of really cool materials that um can go up really high let's think of innovative approaches to insulation that are low embodied carbon high u values and how do we like that's the time i'd like designers to spend in as opposed to let's let's design a really cool bathroom i think and because those those things i think for maybe um you know larger house private house builders who are really marketing these special maybe it's more important for them 70 percent of our homes are built with really good quality to last for us to maintain as private rented and actually all our most of our stock even the private bit is also rented so we don't sell so there's no need to create these special spaces each time to sell actually we're really interested in robustness and it staying good for 10 20 years as opposed to looks good on day one on year two, it's just falling apart. Or yeah, well, there was something, Emma. Like uh, you and I, when we spoke a while ago, you talked. We talked quite a bit about the mixed tenure nature of it and mm. trying to meet a bunch of different residents' needs. I'm curious, like, uh, what do residents actually think of it? And we spoke about an instance of you trying to meet a specific on-site need, like the curious case of the the porch on the site. I mean, would you mind elaborating on that a little rather than me garble a half-remembered story? I think, yeah, I think it's interesting coming back sort of full circle to to the Beckentree estate, which is very standardised. It's a very uniform um, offering of of home. And even the homes that are flats look like houses from the external um, side. So you've got this, um, which I actually, you know, I think it's, I'll, I'll get back to your other point, but just to say on that, I think it's this idea of um, the idea of being the same as being a negative thing, that you have to have this individualism, that you have to have this unique moment when actually if everybody has the same um, level of quality of life, surely that's quite egalitarian. We're saying actually everyone deserves the same amount of space, the same quality of build. You know, one, no one should have so much more and then someone else is 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 stuck in a in a bedsit um in in a, in a terrible condition and and i actually think you know we could we could turn that around and say it's a really positive thing of saying as if that standardized level is high enough why why should it not be very uniform and we should all be living in the same types of spaces and obviously there's variation you know we're not to it saying there's two beds and three beds and five beds but you know the, that, that that quality is universal and um to, to come back to yeah the, the beckon tree which is a yeah really amazing moment where lots of these houses were made very uniform um a hundred years ago residents have made it their own so there's been um uh, a lot of pebble dash a lot of like interesting moments especially as as kind of right to buy came in and more and more um council tenants were able to buy their home and and that was very much a thing of as soon as you buy it you put your stamp on it and make it different from the other homes to show that you know you, it's yours um and kind of working back with that we've been working really closely with a with a group of residents uh, who are a mixture of you know private tenants council tenants and homeowners and actually what when it comes down to it the things that they want are the same. 
the things that they actually genuinely what it was like a functional porch with you know space for people to store their shoes and maybe some a coat hook or two and and something that's stops the draft coming through the front door and, and frees up the hallway um, and the staircase which is usually full of shoes and shit uh frees that up to be a really you know functional um circulation space and actually you know in the beginning everyone was like oh I don't like this and I don't like that and I don't like you know it, it feels people felt as though they wouldn't be able to find common ground but actually working through it with them the parameters that we set up everyone agrees that yeah actually a porch this this roughly this size and roughly this long and providing these functions is is the kind of universal baseline and what we think is like it would what we'd like to go to is kind of say okay there's the component there that you know here's your porch that we know works on the Beckentry homes that we know provides the things that the residents want and then within that, you can have personalization. You could change the color and the material potentially. And you can, you know, we can figure some, maybe you have an additional um, side light by the door, or maybe you don't. And, you know, actually that can provide a lot of variation across, across you know, minor, minor reconfiguring can actually really provide a lot of variation. It doesn't have to be kind of reinvented from the first instance every time. But so long as you've solved the original problem with your initial template or the, the sorry, the pattern from the pattern book, you can adjust it to size within reason and shape within reason and material within reason. The pattern is the pattern is the pattern and the pattern is there to solve a problem. Where does sustainability fit into this? Since l- low carbon has become almost synonymous at points almost interchangeable at points like where do you guys you work with this all the time so how do you see it fitting in i think for us because i think it's it is about embodied carbon and and carbon in use but i think for us it's like a bigger picture when i say us i mean the count i'm speaking on behalf of the council but i think you know as that kind of the the much more long-term nature of the assets that the council holds it's not it's not just about that it's so much so many other aspects factor in it's like what we don't want to do is be providing things that then are obsolete in five years time and need to be replaced and then it doesn't really matter if you got the lowest carbon version of it if you haven't actually made it functional and maintainable then that's still carbon that's wasted so we really want to go make something considered make it once make it work make it so that it could be adapted if it needs to be so it doesn't have to be you know ripped off and thrown out and rebuilt um where we where we can but really like work on the functionality and the and the kind of the real the workability of it so so make sure it's like it's not just a kind of gimmicky kind of oh it's a low carbon you know it's a little wooden thing that looks great but then you know it's going to warp or it's not yeah it's it's not providing the air tightness that you would need and then you're going to chuck it out and replace it with a uvpc you know plastic door in five years time anyway so how does operational performance factor into this then because if you come up with the pattern book you work out the production methods you work out installation is performance being measured to feed back into that loop yes well the the Operation is interesting. So I, I do want to finish off the embodied carbon bit, because 
the kind of default response is that is that's improved because of transport and all of that stuff. But I actually think <laughs> the waste is a really big one. I was lit, I was on site last week and there was a wheelie bin on the second floor with a roll of probably what looked like 10 meters of cable, half finished paint bucket, quite a few bits of timber and steel. And some at some point, someone's going to take that down and take out the bits and hopefully separate the main bits of waste and recycle them. But most of that is going to be downcycled and not upcycled in any way. And I think we forget that actually we've been building in modules all the time. And I think the problem is because of those standardized modules, you inherently, unless you design to them, create waste. Um, and architects generally have been pretty good at designing to brick dims. But if we think about the size plasterboard sheets come in or plywood comes in or MDF comes in or steel extrusions come in, I have never seen design teams like design the size of a room so that full plasterboard sheets could be used or like that level of deep standardization, knowing what the what the standard modules of construction are and designing to them so you don't have to cut loads on site. Even things like when you go into past stage three and you start seeing um, structural columns being boxed out or waste pipes, you just then think that you've, you've got one box, you've created four extra cuts, you've created four extra cuts for the skirting, the plasterboard, the lighting, the cable trays, and that's just just goes unmeasured but the amount of time and waste you've created by just creating one thing on plan which you think is a really quick easy thing for me to solve now you've infinitely increased what you're going to that what that's going to be doing on site and i think for me the biggest thing is how much of that we just can eliminate so actually you've 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 eliminated all of that unnecessarily unnecessary cutting but actually if you're in factory conditions, there's much higher likeliness of recycling things or upcycling things because you've got a roll of cable. You're just using what you need. You haven't ordered 50 meters and you're discarding the last 10 um, because you've just ordered it for the job. You don't need it. It's paid for already. And that, I think, is just it's because it's not measured yet. But I think we can't underestimate there's going to be a huge, huge, huge reduction potentially in waste for embodied carbon. And um, for operational, I think the biggest one will be higher quality environment, tighter tolerances, leading to much higher air tightness. And the other aspects of it are really to do with your, your kit and your fabric, which is much more to do with your specification and use of materials, I think. When it comes to um, monitoring and testing, that's interesting because Emma and I are also um, working on another really cool project, which is... We're calling it our digital twin pilot, but we are effectively um, we've completed a building of 201 homes that's got a mixture of a um, townhouses, maisonettes, um, dual aspect flats, corner flats, single flats, just all the typologies this architect could think of and shove them into one project. And we are going to be monitoring, and it's all been designed in BIM, so we've got 3D files of architecture, m and &E, and structures. We put them all together. And we are going to be collating the water use, electricity use, and the heating use of the house, of every flat and every block and the communal areas um, to monitor that performance. And then we've also installed on eight flats, we've installed sensors that will measure temperature, humidity, acoustics, daylight and sunlight. Um, uh, uh, and it was one more thing. But the idea of that that project is we know there's a massive performance gap. And this, this building has some elements of um, MMC in it, but we're testing how we can um, do this monitoring. So if we're able to collate all of that data and compare what we think at design stages, the, the heating of that building is going to be the electricity and how much it actually is, as well as 
the sensors are really interesting because we start to understand is there what's the temperature and humidity and air quality like in flat one versus flat two right is that connected to the fact that they've switched off their mbhr these guys leave their window open is that connected to um a different lifestyle somebody has we're going to layer all of that up and actually there's a couple of really interesting universities that want to take that data and start to analyze it and actually start forming some hypotheses about some of the really interesting things you could do is you could do proactive management with that. So you could actually see the way somebody is using their flat in three months time, there's going to be damp buildup and mold that somebody's going to have to remediate. So you could influence and alter behavior before a problem exists so that you could prevent the need to maintain. I'm super excited about that. And why that could be connected to MMC is because we could, um, offsite methods could also look at monitoring embedded as part of componentry what we're doing now is kind of an after install but you could think if you start embedding components and sensors in uh, inside inside modules a for like um something me and em have talked about a lot is material passports and understanding detailed information about components both during you know where is that imagine if you've got like this tag on a component that's left the factory you could have some cool dashboard where it's like these are all the components half yeah. of them are on site half of them are being erected half of them are erected and when the building's completed you can you know you could test the health of them you could see like are they performing as well as they should etc and then when you take them back down you know what they're made of who their original manufacturer is like that's just like having that level of data is just incredible i think i can't imagine somebody doing that on site when they're like doing sticking a bit of fire stopping in squeezing it in and then going actually let's mark that let's put a set like i just <laughs> that, that seems like a world world away i think it, it, yeah it seems like a it would be a preposterous undertaking but with this <laughs> degree of standardization yeah it, it takes so much of the brain work out of thinking about that's it how the whole system works together i'm thinking about like it could be really useful for contractors further down the line who have to carry out work. If they can get access to the plans, they know what they're opening up, they know what to expect. So retrofitting becomes a different prospect if there is a pattern book that everyone has access to. And then that feeds in potentially naturally to the the perpetual building passports conundrum that no one's really got to the bottom of, which... We're always hearing good ideas about and early stage ideas. We just need to find a way to start doing it to collect the data. Oh my! I don't think we're quite there, Emma, on the on the digital twin thing we're doing in terms of actually the in terms of piloting the material passports at this stage. But certainly, all those other things in terms of data monitoring, sensors, performance, interactive maintenance. I think that's not that's totally possible with this pilot we're doing now. Yeah. I think that in its incrementally doing some interesting things i think is probably the best way then i guess we pile on every possible thing that we have insane ideas about <laughs> because i think one some of the things you said earlier dan about about getting permission to do some of this stuff you know emma and i are often at like the amount of times we see some cool funding opportunity or oh there's this awesome innovate uk funding and then we're like right we got a week let's put a proposal together <laughs> let's go in front of the, the decision makers in the council and I mean, we're obviously jumping with passion and joy. We're like, let's do this, let's do this. And then we quickly pull a bid together. And most of these things that we do, it's a combo of unlocking external funding because then we're able to take the risk, financial risk off the council. 
to go and test some stuff that we can then bake into their way of working. And sometimes it's just we really believe in an idea and we're like, you guys really need to do this. And then we've got some internal funding to allow us to test some of these things as well. So like the digital twin pilots, all internal funding, but the Beckentry design code is all mostly all external funding. The patent book is all mostly external funding. So it's kind of yeah, understanding those levers that you have as well to be able to leverage funding to do some interesting things outside of what might be your day-to-day job. Yeah, and well, props, well done. To go back uh, full circle once again, I think one of the interesting things we found in doing the retrofit design guide and the design code for the Beckentry is because we we ended up doing a lot of analysis of you know 100 year old drawings from the archive and then and then actually we've got a pilot scheme where we we tested all the walls wall build up and and tested the structural timbers and had an assessment done and then we're releasing that into the public domain to say look this is you know all of the all of the houses were built within a 30-year period so they're they're fairly you know you it's about the same yeah roughly the same in terms of the age of the components and we're saying we've done the analysis for you guys we know that they're all constructed the same so here you go here's your starting point and hopefully you don't you know you don't have to get some specialist in to do boreholes and check the build up and this has your cav- is your wall cavity or is it solid brick it's like we've done that for you so then you, you it it kickstarts hopefully the conversation to go okay that's it's taken that off the table and it's made retrofit a little bit easier and i think we think the same could be done with mmc if it's like okay you know the grid system you know the components you've got that stuff sorted you don't have to go back to the table and try and figure out how on earth was this building put together you can just go right here are the five things that we know could work if it does need to be adapted in the future because we know that this system this system is only one of three variations on on the grid or something like that and then i think the other thing is coming back to putting pressure on on the supply chain it's if we can if we can say we're committed to these levels of components and we want you to be monitoring how they perform and we've got the baseline of you know you know that they're going to be installed in the same types of ways in very you know with minimal range we're not asking you to do a full height version of your window we're going to say these are this is our glazing you know grid give us the most efficient one and we can we can come back to you and say look this data wasn't you know the air tightness wasn't great or the humidity was a bit high you know can we look at these trickle vents again can we look at something else can we modify that component and hopefully because of the standardization there's they can work with that and kind of go okay we know why you know we can look at why that wasn't performing well enough across these four or five different cases rather than saying, oh, but it was a totally different variation of our module and that's probably why it didn't perform. And so we're not going to go back and look at it again. So I think, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm optimistic about it. I think also uh, uh, from what Amandeep was saying as well, uh, there are so many in the kind of MMC sparkle dust hype world. There are a lot of people who are really passionate about sustainability and about looking at it holistically and kind of going for that, you know, saying this isn't just ticking one box. And maybe it's not a silver bullet, but it's like it's something that can do a lot of things. It can unlock a lot of a lot of yeah. the kind of issues that come up over and over again in construction. So with that in mind, so if someone's listening or know someone who wants to embark on a project which incorporates these ideas, principles, strategies, like whether 
public or private sector, where do they start? I mean, where did you guys start, to be fair? I asked this big question, realizing that we're well over an hour. So we probably <laughs> should think about wrapping up. No, we can. It's up to us how long it runs. Like it's only, it's my labor at this point, And I'm happy to carry on the conversation because I have to do the editing. So the longer it is, the longer I have to spend on a Monday. So how would someone get, yeah, how does someone get stuck in? I would say actually starting with what we are soon going to be publishing this. And our, I think our website will be updated in, in a week or two's time, bfirst.london. Um, and we are going to be providing links to that in there quite shortly. So the good thing about that is I think it gives a bit of background and it says what it is and it, it's not written in loads of techie jargon. So actually it's, it's a useful thing to just load up, check it out, play around with it. That's the pattern book itself. And the other thing Emma and I are working on, which is the Beckentry design code and the retrofit design guide, which has all that info that we've co-collected and surveyed and, you know, what it costs to do your house and what's your house made. They will also be publicly available documents that I think we'll probably be sharing post-May, probably on the council's website. So they will be really good documents that we've worked on um, to start playing with. But then outside of that, there's been some really interesting, um, you know, the construction playbook that the government put out a while ago, which talks about how uh, builders, manufacturers need to start working in a strategic and standardized way, I think is a really good document um, to go to. And and the farm, I actually found uh, Mark Farmer's report, which is like modernize or die, is actually, it's quite a good, it, it really just talks about some of the points I raised at the beginning about the state of the construction sector and why this is not really a choice anymore it's sort of like we do need we just need to do it it's just a good thing like if you really want to rattle yourself off yes we do need to do modernize or die report i'd recommend as well uh, so yeah that's a couple of docs from me emma's probably got loads of other really cool documents as well to, to add to that i don't know if i do i think i, I mean I, I think i've hyped it up now so you've got to yeah. <laughs> i mean i was i was gonna say more of a warning it's like don't go to the government website of <laughs> Oh right, yeah. Well, it's a contrary opinion to mine. Just don't do what I said. <laughs> no, but the the one where it just talks about all the different categories without really giving you um, context. Yeah. yeah, that's um, maybe. Yeah, maybe we should cut that controversy. We can we can hide that. <laughs> oh no, um, no, we're, we're big into disagreeing. Where would you point people then, if not at the government website? Anything in particular, or just keep an eye on the work that you're doing and copy you guys. I feel like we're sending a lot of traffic to a page that doesn't exist yet. But <laughs> okay, <laughs> um, I oh gosh, sorry, I'm having a full blank. I might have to come back to you on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, by all means. Please know. I've um, got a book recommendation as well, uh, which is called "Crossing the Chasm." It basically just talks about how do you cross the early innovators, adopters who are taking the risk. And then the very end people, which are like, it's all done and dusted, so we're confident. And then there's a massive cavity in between, basically, which yeah. is preventing people leaping. It's quite a good book that just, again, I think, talks about how do we make that leap, who's making it, who's not. And and it's quite a relatively easy read as well. Cool. Um, who's that by? Or do you want to send us the link and we'll stick it in the show notes? I'll send you a link, but yeah. um, I, I'll be at an off... I'm actually at an off-site... I'm at the off-site expo with... A couple of people we're partly going to be discussing the subject of that book with some really interesting panel members um nigel ostein from hawkins brown will be chairing it 
Um, but there'll be a really lively and interesting debate with people from central government, local government, myself, architects, consultants about all of this kind of how do we take the leap? How do we start doing it instead of saying instead of just saying we're going to do it? How do we start doing it? Well, and you are leading the charge, it would seem. Yeah, so. hopefully leading people into leading the charge in the right direction. Who knows? Leading the charge is one thing. Leading people towards something. But, hopefully, <laughs> yeah. Well, you're very well qualified in that regard. I mean, qualified as in you've got your degrees in architectural qualifications and the like, and you've done. You are caveating yourself appropriately. <laughs> yeah. Oh. yeah. Cool. All right. Anything else right. you'd like to plug? Any questions? Last questions from you, Alex. Oh, no, I'm, I'm very happy. No plugs from me, I think. Well, you can you can follow us both on probably nowhere. <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> we, yeah, I'm not you very follow Be first, Be first Design on Instagram. Oh, yeah, our design team will be great. We regularly update on the call. Yeah, Instagram handle at Be First Design if you want to find out about what an, um, I'd say London's leading in-house design team is doing in the local sector. Um, cool. Yeah. All right, well, we'll make sure we get that in the notes. Um, all right, as we we usually say, I'm sure we'll have to have you back at some point to find out how it's going. I mean, I, I think I'll be very interested to see, to hear how uh, the the pattern book is received and like what happens with that because, uh, yeah, there'll be a lot to learn, whichever way it goes. Um, you and me both. Uh, like- <laughs> Part of me is like really excited, but part of me is like, oh my god, what if it doesn't work? No, it's uh, we're we're testing it on our own project before we tell people. Like, it, it's going to be a beta until we've completed one of our own projects, learnt the lessons, put them back in the pattern book, and said, guys, we've tested it, we've learnt, we've rolled it out. Whereas I think we'll we'll still make it available for everybody as a beta, saying look, we're still testing it. Mm. But you know, feel free to experiment with it. We don't want to hold, you know, construction projects take four or five years. We don't want to start testing something now that we can't launch in four or five years' time. So, yeah, we're, it's, we've launched it on one of our, you know, a smaller, medium-sized schemes. So it'd be great to actually come back and share, you know, once we've got that project to a certain stage. Oh, most definitely. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, really, really insightful. Yeah, I mean, Alex and I advocate for getting it, getting things wrong is part of the process. You can't know how to get everything right all the time. You don't learn anything from that. Yep. You know, things change, circumstances change. You have one has to adapt. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, um, yeah. Thank you very much for joining us, and uh, thank you to all the listeners who've joined us today. Uh, as ever, please share this. If you enjoy it, if you get something out of it, I'm sure you probably know someone else who will. So please share it with them. Uh, review it. A written review. We've got very few of them. But yeah, just a five-star review. Like, <laughs> indulge us in our toxic positivity. Uh, apparently only five-star reviews count. Or, oh. you know, it's, it's algorithmic nonsense. You're not really being judged. Anything else, Alex? Oh, speak to us about uh, the consultancy if you need any help. We like talking about these things, so just give us a shout. ZAP at EIUX.agency. We will be getting a website and our own email addresses for this. Uh, oh, yeah. Join ACAN, join the ACB, join the IGBC. Uh, any acronyms you'd like to include, Alec? Nope. No, no, that's fine. That's cool. enough. All right. And uh, DFMA instead of MMC. I think we can all agree on that. 
Yes. Okay, yeah, I can and, get and get on board with that anyway in, in, yeah. as a basic. <laughs> All right, big up. Thank you. Thank, Bye. You. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Cheers, guys.